Hello and welcome to another special episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. You could also probably say it's an extra special episode. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Indeed, this is an extra special episode outside of our normal schedule of release. Uh, normally in our regular episodes, we are now up to the Middle Ages on our chronological journey through Swedish history. Today we're bringing you something very different, but... First of all, should we do a disclaimer regarding what our voices sound like? Yeah, we've both been a bit ill recently. Not Corona. Um, no, nope, we have been tested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that hopefully shouldn't be the case. But we have come down with colds slash severe pollen allergy reactions in my case. So if our voices sound a bit weird, uh, that will be why. Yes. Should we get on with a quick Swedish phrase? Yeah, let's do a quick Swedish phrase of the week before uh, before we get started. So this is a phrase that I think says a lot about life in Sweden. Det finns inget dåligt väder, bara dåliga kläder. And that translates to English as there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. I think this is the official motto of every single Swedish school teacher, nursery school teacher, parent because trust me growing up in this country you are made to be outside no matter what it's like oh it's minus 30 degrees and a snowstorm go out and play Poof. and that's kind of what the phrase means uh, you can be outside no matter the weather as long as you're dressed appropriately the weather itself isn't bad Exactly. And I think that's very much the Swedish attitude to things. Uh, we are quite a cold country for most of the year, but we're also good at adapting to it. And in general, Swedes like to spend time outdoors, even when it is cold and the weather isn't great. I mean, I've had picnics in sub-zero temperatures many times in my life, something that I know friends who grew up in warmer countries find quite bizarre it's like it's one thing we have to live through it do you mean i also have to enjoy it it's like yes just get dressed properly and then there's no bad weather yeah you guys are a bit mad like that but it's not just you i know this phrase exists in other scandinavian languages as well i've definitely heard it a lot in norway for example And the Danes say it as well. Like I said, when you live in this part of the world, you can't let the weather stop you. You just have to wrap up and get on with it. But yeah, I imagine uh, this phrase definitely exists in Russia, for example, mm -hmm. where it's uh, snowy Siberia. Yeah. If we have uh, listeners from other snowy and cold parts of the world, please let us know if you have a similar phrase in your language. Yes. So uh, what are we going to be talking about today, apart from bad weather? Well, a few months ago, we were invited to speak at the Great Intelligent Speech Conference. We released an episode previewing our talk at Intelligent Speech a few months ago, and we talked about it in a couple of the previous episodes as well, so you should all know uh, at least a little bit about what it was. But it was uh, an amazing event that brought together loads of history podcasters from all over the world in this sort of virtual conference where you would have been able to listen to us and other podcasts talk about specific subjects and also take part in panel discussions as well as some Q&As and it was really great fun and we were delighted to be asked onto it this year. Yeah we really were, it was a great experience. Uh, the theme for this year's intelligence speech conference was 
escape. So we gave a talk called Escaping Invasion Sweden During World War II. It was a really interesting topic to research and write about. And like Chris said, we had such a good time presenting on it and then answering questions about it at the conference. Yeah, it was a really good platform that was really visual and interactive. So uh, you could actually see us as well as hear us, which was quite crazy. And I can't remember if we mentioned it in the regular episodes of the podcast, but I actually had a minor surgery for a hernia just one day before the conference. And we knew this is planned well in advance. You know, it was a planned surgery. Um, so we knew I wasn't going to be able to do the conference live. So that meant we had to pre-record our presentation. And that's why we have the recording of the presentation that we can share with you today, because that's what this episode is going to be. It's going to be us replaying for our podcast listeners the presentation that we gave at Intelligent Speech. And so we thought it would be nice to release this in one of our sort of empty weekends between regular releases. So that's why it's not entirely like a special episode which are released in the regular schedule of things. This is sort of filling up one of those uh, middle weekends as a surprise. Indeed. Uh, so without much further ado, here's past Chris and past Elsa giving a talk on how and why Sweden escaped invasion during World War II. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, we're Chris and Orsa from A Flatpak History of Sweden. Normally on our podcast, we make our way chronologically through Swedish history, and we've now reached the high Middle Ages. But today we're taking a massive leap forward to talk about Sweden during the Second World War. Yeah, and in particular, we're going to talk about how Sweden escaped invasion, something that our neighbouring countries did not. Sweden is often heralded as a peaceful country, sometimes going as far as being credited with having the longest peace in modern history. While that is a question of definition and a topic of debate, it's true that Sweden has not officially been at war since around 1814. The outbreak of the Second World War in mainland Europe in September 1939 does not go unnoticed in Sweden. The armed forces are called up, blackout measures are put in place, and rationing is quickly introduced to avoid a repeat of the shortages that the country faced during World War I. The country quickly declares neutrality, and the government at the time, led by Social Democrat Prime Minister Per Albin Hansson, hopes that they can achieve something similar to what was done during World War I, namely neutrality and protection of their own people and economy. What does have an effect on Sweden, however, is when the USSR, in November of that year, invades Finland. Sweden and Finland shared deep historical and cultural ties, and the Swedes cared deeply for their brothers in Finland. However, that care doesn't extend to getting directly involved in helping them fight off the Red Army. It's quickly made clear to Finland by the Swedish government that they're going to refuse to send any military aid. Sweden, unlike Finland, isn't in the USSR's sphere of influence, and Prime Minister Hansson wants to, at all costs, avoid poking the volatile Russian bear. However, on a more personal level, Swedish volunteers will join the Finnish army as private citizens and Sweden will send humanitarian aid to Finland and will receive 80,000 children from Finland to be kept safe in Swedish foster families. 
Indeed, and things change, and change dramatically when the spring of 1940 rolls around. On the 9th of April, Germany invades Denmark and Norway, so more neighbours of Sweden. Denmark is actually occupied in less than a day. In Norway, fighting goes on for slightly longer, especially up north, where the Germans fight Norwegian, British and Polish forces for control of the important harbour at Narvik. But by late May, the Allies are forced to retreat and the Norwegians, like the Danes, are subject to Nazi occupation. So all of Sweden's neighbours are now either invaded or at war. Along the Swedish shores of the Öresund Strait, the windows of my grandparents' homes rattle and shrapnel fall in their gardens as the Nazis bomb Helsingør and Copenhagen, which is less than four kilometres away, just on the other side of the narrow Straits of Öresund. Yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> and considering all of this, it's almost odd that Sweden isn't invaded. If it took the Nazis a day to occupy Denmark and less than two months to conquer Norway, why don't they then take Sweden while they're at it? Uh, to answer that question, let's look at first why the other Nordic countries were invaded, and secondly, at why both Germany and the USSR might have wanted to invade Sweden to answer the question of, in the end, why they didn't. Please bear in mind we could spend hours or dedicate entire books or podcasts to the subject, so our presentation is just a brief overview of the topic more than anything else. First up, Finland. Uh, for around 100 years, Finland had, up until their independence in 1917, been part of the Russian Empire as a Grand Duchy. After Stalin took over, Russia had an expansionist mindset and seized the Soviet Union as a successor to the old Russian Empire. And Finland, along with the Baltic states, are territories that should now be retaken. Stalin had a much more practical reason for his actions as well. By getting hold of Finland, he secures ice-free ports, vital for both military and civilian purposes. He also wants the islands in the Finnish archipelago to help him gain power in the Baltic Sea, and he also wants back the Karelian Isthmus, a slice of Finnish land west of St. Petersburg, which has longer historical ties to Russia than most other parts of Finland. So that's Finland, but what about Denmark and Norway? In general, the Nazis aren't actually that bothered with Denmark. Denmark itself serves no real purpose to them. It isn't rich in raw materials, and it isn't agitating against Nazi Germany. Yes, there is a slight border dispute that goes back centuries over the region of Schleswig-Holstein. But whilst the Nazis might use that as a justification in propaganda, the only real practical reason for invading Denmark is to assist in the invasion of Norway. The Nazis need control over the northern tip of Denmark to be able to launch attacks along the Norwegian coasts, and a few more airfields closer to, Nor to Norway won't hurt either. So, quite simply, they cannot leave Denmark open if they want to make sure they get Norway. Yeah, and getting Norway is what they really want, because, or actually, mainly the Swedish iron ore that's shipped out of Norwegian ports to Germany. And they're worried that this is going to stop coming as the war progresses. The Allies are even thinking about invading Norway themselves to ensure that the supply of iron ore to Germany is cut off. So 
the Nazi war machine is heavily dependent on iron ore, which is used in munitions, but also to make ships, tanks, and railroads, and everything. And uh, Norway has something else that the Nazis want too. They have a long westward-facing coast with lots of deep fjords. And these fjords are ideal for naval and submarine bases from which the Nazis can then fight the British and try to take control of the Atlantic and the North Sea. So there we go. Now we know why the USSR and Germany wanted to invade the other Nordic countries. But what about Sweden? Unlike the Russians in Finland or the Germans in Denmark, there were no historical ties that could work as a propaganda tool for invading Sweden. Uh, Sweden's coastline faces east or south, so towards areas that Hitler or Stalin already controlled. Uh, there was no need to take Sweden in order to have a base for launching attacks against another more important enemy like there was in the case of Norway. Stalin was never too bothered with Sweden. As long as he got Finland, he was quite happy to leave the rest of Scandinavia in Hitler's sphere of influence, at least for the moment. And Sweden only really had one thing that the Nazis wanted, and we've mentioned it already, iron ore. Yes, again, we're going back to this iron ore because it's really quite important. Uh, this iron is mined all across northern Sweden and is sold to Germany long before the war started, even before the Nazis took over. And when the Nazis took power in Germany, many influential Swedes saw no reason to stop trading with them. Their attitude was, well, they might be morally dubious, but business is business. And in by the time we get to 1940, 40% of the iron ore used in Germany came from Sweden. So it's a huge chunk of this uh, war machine. And in summer, the ore was shipped directly out of Swedish ports uh, into the Baltic and down to Germany. But in winter, these ports froze over and the vast majority of the iron ore then had to be shipped via trains across to Narvik in Norway and from then on down through the North Sea into Germany. That's why Narvik was so important to the Nazis, as we mentioned earlier, during the uh, invasion of Norway. Because this export of iron ore to Germany was in place before the war, stopping it once the war had broken out could be seen as a breach of international law, because changing trade relations so dramatically to have an impact on the ongoing conflict isn't actually adhering to neutrality because you're helping one side by changing your, your actions. And most importantly, the Germans could have seen it as a hostile act, which might have meant uh, they would then invade Sweden to ensure they could continue getting their supply of iron ore. And Sweden knew this. Most importantly, Germany knew that Sweden knew this. They knew that Sweden was terrified that if they messed up with the iron ore, they would face the wrath of an angry Führer. So they made sure that Sweden stayed scared and they kept the iron ore coming. Sweden was dependent on receiving several important goods, uh, in particular coal, in return for the iron ore that they provided Germany. And after April 1940, Nazi Germany had mined the Skagerrak, that piece of sea between Denmark and Norway, effectively blocking off the Baltic Sea from the rest of the world, which meant that Sweden had more or less no one else to trade with, since very little could come through there to reach Sweden, except coming via Nazi Germany or their other occupied territories. So we've now come to the heart of the question for our talk. Uh, we've established that if someone was going to invade Sweden, it would likely be Nazi Germany. 
And we've established that the one thing that they would want from Sweden was iron ore. But we've also seen that by backing Sweden into a corner, Nazi Germany got the iron ore anyway. They didn't need to lose men in the invasion or keep thousands of them in garrison like they were doing in Norway and Denmark. They got what they wanted anyway, because other than the iron ore, they didn't need or want much from Sweden. And moreover, unlike with many other areas of Europe, Nazi Germany's dealings in Scandinavia wasn't really motivated by racial ideology as such. Whereas in many other countries, the Nazis wanted to establish their presence to gain Lebensraum, taking land from those who they said were inferior people, Scandinavia was already populated by people who, in the Nazis' warped eyes and opinions, were clean Aryans, tall, blonde, blue eyes, exactly what they wanted the Germans to be. That's not to say that Scandinavia wasn't home to a Jewish or Romani population as it was, but these were much smaller in number than compared to, say, Poland. And when Norway and Denmark came under Nazi occupation, these communities did also suffer a terrible fate at the hands of the Nazi death squads or in concentration camps, but luckily quite a lot did manage to escape to Sweden. Uh, the access to the iron ore might have been the reason Sweden escaped invasion in the spring of 1940, but as the war went on, it wasn't the only time that Nazi Germany scared Sweden into getting what they wanted. While the iron ore export continues uninterrupted, Berlin soon places other demands on the Swedish government. Already in June 1940, Germany demands that Sweden allows German troops in Norway to travel through Sweden on Swedish railroads for onward travel to Germany. Officially, these soldiers are either wounded or on leave and traveling unarmed, and under such circumstances that might have been acceptable under the terms of Swedish neutrality. However, the official account of nothing but wounded soldiers or personnel on leave, that's an all-out lie. Pretty much from the start, Germany also uses Swedish railways to send weapons and other military equipment and soldiers on active duty to Germany and around different parts of Norway. And this traffic is not acceptable under the terms of the neutrality in any way. No, and during the course of the war, more than two million German soldiers would have been transported on the Swedish railways, a fact that really does destroy this claim of neutrality. Germany also puts demands on Sweden later on in the war, and this reaches boiling point in the summer of 1941. In uh, June of 1941, uh, Germany, along with Finland, invaded the Soviet Union. And on the 21st of June, the German embassy in Stockholm sends a demand to Prime Minister Hanson and his government, which was, allow us to send our 163rd Infantry Division from Norway to Finland, across Sweden, on Swedish railways. And this demand is on a whole other level than the previous railway transports from Norway that are already ongoing. They're bad enough, but now we're talking about moving belligerent troops from an occupied territory to fight an ongoing active war. The 163rd is an infantry division consisting of nearly 15,000 soldiers, and allowing them passage on Swedish railways is not accordance to neutrality in any way, shape or form. 
And the days that follow are tense. The events coincide with the Swedish holiday of Midsummer and will therefore go down in history as the Midsummer Crisis. The Germans make it clear that it's a case of allow this or we'll eliminate you. But is it just an empty threat? Are the Germans just talking big? Will they actually invade? Can they afford the troops and the time to do this? Or should the Swedish government call their bluff? Or is it a bluff? Or should they fold just to be safe? There's so many angles to this. And to add to the Prime Minister's troubles, Sweden's ageing monarch, the very pro-German King Gustav V, threatens to abdicate if the government doesn't agree to Germany's terms. In cabinet, the ministers argue for and against accepting the Germans' demands, many saying that this move would place Sweden actively on the side of Nazi Germany. There's a real risk the government will fall, which Prime Minister Hansson thinks would make Sweden even more vulnerable to Nazi control in the future. In the end, the pragmatic Hansson unites his government, and in a move that none of them said they were proud of, they give in to the demands. The Germans passed through Sweden over the summer, and of course most of the 15,000 young men that did make that journey would not survive the war. So why does the Swedish government repeatedly give in to Nazi Germany's demands? Uh, whilst not seizing the iron ore export, which is what kept Germany out in the first place, that might be seen as a move to not disturb the neutrality. Allowing these troop movements definitely does. And those are not the only demands that Germany makes during the first years of the war. Swedish media is so censored for fear of it publishing or broadcasting anything that might upset the Germans. The Nazi embassy in Stockholm exercises such a control over what gets put out there that they even manage to forbid the performance of a popular anti-Nazi song. After the war, the men in government, because they were all men, give different answers to why they allowed what they did. But it all boiled down to more or less the same core. We did everything to not be invaded. We did everything to not be bombed. To escape invasion, Sweden gave in to Hitler's demands, stayed quiet and curtailed our democracy. Because to avoid a public outcry or political opposition, the Hansen government often only informed the people and the parliament after the decisions were already made, a practice that is not in accordance with democratic process. And Sweden has asked itself ever since whether this was the right thing to do. It's not for us to present a definite yes or no answer to that question, and we must respect that the people alive then saw things from a different view than we do with the benefit of hindsight, whichever side of the argument they were on. Yeah, it was a tough situation to be in. But to finish our presentation, now that we've addressed the main question of how Sweden escaped invasion, we thought we'd touch on a few events and aspects of life in Sweden during the war, things they weren't able to escape. Because whilst the country wasn't bombed, it didn't mean that nothing happened. Bombs might not have rained over Sweden like in the rest of Europe, but there was an occasional shower. Um, in February of 1944, the USSR bombed three places in Sweden, the towns of Strängnäs, Södertälje and central Stockholm. 
In the case of Strengness, the military barracks there were hit, but fortunately no one was killed, but a few soldiers did suffer some wounds. The official Soviet explanation behind these bombings were the fact that the plane simply took a wrong turn. They were meant to bomb Finland and ended up flying over central Sweden instead. So, yeah. Um, however, the case of the Soviet bombings in 1944 did attract particular attention because a Soviet spy who was caught in Stockholm, Vasily Sidorenko, he'd been in prison uh, for about a year at this point, And he was surprisingly pardoned just three days after the bombing. So were the bombings in fact accidental or were they maybe a way to put pressure on Sweden to release this spy? Both official accounts from Sweden and the USSR and most historians still claim that no, it was actually just a coincidence that these two things happened in the same week, but it was perhaps naturally given rise to some suspicion over the years. Uh, the bombings in 1944 weren't the first or the only time that Sweden was accidentally hit. In total, Sweden was actually bombed 29 times during World War II, 10 times by Germany, 12 times by Great Britain, and a further six by the USSR. And of course, that's not a lot compared to the rest of Europe, but it is quite a lot for a neutral country that wasn't actively actively involved in the fighting. Miraculously, no one was killed in any of these bombing raids over Sweden, but many were injured and material damage was quite extensive. Instead, by far the biggest killer for Swedes during World War II were the mines that were laid all around the coast, and around 2,000 Swedish sailors lost their lives after uh, running into these mines. The rationing that we mentioned at the start, that increased as the war went on, and so did the blackouts, as well as drafting and conscription of men into the army. But for most Swedes, the war had a passive effect on daily life. Even for those called up to serve in the armed forces, it was a case of constant training and vigilance, but no actual fighting. However, there were some people who took it one step further. Between 180 and 300 Swedish men, numbers vary according to source, joined the Waffen-SS, the most brutal of all Nazi forces, and some even fought all the way to the Battle of Berlin. In domestic politics, the Swedish Nazi party never gained any seats in parliament, but that's not to say they didn't have a certain influence, especially on a local level. Some 30,000 Swedes were registered members of Nazi and Nazi-sympathizing parties. Many more had pro-German sympathies, like the King that we mentioned, and others held anti-Semitic, racist, and anti-Roma opinions. But there were also those who risked their lives helping the Danish and Norwegian resistance fighters, or helped British and American airmen or spies escape those countries. We've already mentioned the volunteers who went mm -hmm. to Finland to fight the USSR. They numbered some 9,500 men during the Winter War. And in the dying days of the war, around 15,000 people were rescued from Nazi extermination camps by the Swedish Red Cross and their white buses action. Yeah, most Swedes spent their days trying to get by during World War II. And some people got more actively involved, whether that was for good or bad. But what they all shared was the fact that their country never got invaded. Uh, this fact set them apart from their neighbours, and this would have an influence on Sweden's strong belief in non-alliance and neutrality during the Cold War that was to follow. 
But yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this little presentation on how Sweden managed to escape invasion during the Second World War. And also will now magically uh, transform into the present day and we'll stay on to continue the conversation. So thank you very much. Well, now we're back in the present, uh, thanks to some timey-wimey type Ooh. transition. Timey-wimey, that's a Doctor Who reference for anyone who watches that BBC programme. Yes, um, and I can't remember exactly how we set up recording uh, that video, because that was a video, we were obviously just playing the audio now. So if it was really obvious that we were recording it slightly differently from the sound quality there you go. That's why. Um, some people might not be able to tell. But yeah, um, that was our talk, Escaping Invasion Sweden During World War II. Uh, we can't recommend intelligent speech enough. It's been a great event for anyone who's a fan of history podcasts, and it seems to be a yearly thing. So hopefully it's back next year. So do keep an eye out for it. If it does come back next year, we'll definitely be posting about it on social media. And if we end up talking about it, we'll obviously mention it in our regular episodes as we get closer to the time. That would be great. Uh, fingers crossed. Because Chris was recovering from surgery, I did the Q&A afterwards, which was so much fun. There were so many great questions. And so if you have any questions after listening to it now... Do send us an email or a message on Twitter or Facebook and we can get back to you and answer as best we can. Obviously, we had to summarize a very big topic like Sweden during World War II and why uh, the country wasn't invaded in just over 20 minutes. So we definitely skipped over or only briefly mentioned some very big parts of the story. So I'm sure there are questions and maybe gaps that we could fill in, so feel free to get in touch. But for now, before we leave you, we've had some lovely feedback, or should we call it informal comments, maybe, from one of our younger listeners that we'd love to share with you. It really cheered us up and brightened up our week when we heard this. Yes, and that's because uh, we have found or heard about possibly our youngest listener, and that is Oliver, who is 10 and lives in the UK, back where we used to live. And he's been listening to us over the past few months. And that's because Oliver's mum is Swedish, and so there's uh, obviously a strong connection to Sweden in the family. And like many kids in the UK and all over the world, really, Oliver spent a lot of time being homeschooled these last 18 months because of the pandemic. And so uh, I think his mum suggested he should listen to some sort of podcast so and chose obviously us the best one and it was the best one because Oliver seemed to like it which is great to hear and in fact just like me he took a shine to uh, Erinbert one of those first missionaries that came to Sweden in the 800s and uh, where we sort of called them Erim Herman Herman Erimbert Erimbert because they all had the same sort of similar sounding names and Hermabert was <laughs> one of our uh, made up names for this Erinbert chap uh, which was very good that was in Episode 12, The Amazing Adventures of Antscar. Yeah, that is amazing. I remember we had so much fun talking about all those different Berts. They were all called something something Bert, and who came and tried to convert the Swedes during the Viking Age. So I'm glad to hear Oliver also took a shine to those funny names. And thank you so much for listening, Oliver, and for being so involved in your listening. 
Yes, and because that isn't just it, because Oliver suggested uh, slightly changing or even improving our name, because at first he thought we were called a flapjack <laughs> history of Sweden, um, which is would be a much more tasty podcast, I think. Yeah, flapjack history of Sweden. A flapjack, for those of you who aren't familiar with the word, it's an oat bar, like a cookie thing. So thank you so much, Oliver. We're so happy you're enjoying our podcast, and we hope you keep listening and keep being interested in history uh, throughout your life. And thanks to Oliver's mum for listening with Oliver and for getting in touch with us on social media to tell us about this. Like I said, it really brightened up our week. And if you want to get in touch and let us know some uh, funny alternative names for the podcast, you can do so uh, using our regular details, like on uh, Facebook and Twitter, and on email at flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. But for now, it's bye-bye from us. Yes, we'll see you next time for a regular weekend slot. Uh, hey, Dor. Hey, Dor.